but one of the things that I've learned about discipleship, and there's something you guys need to know about those who teach scripture and those who uh, engage in the practice of discipling and discipleship, you need to think of discipleship more as mentorship. Um, I think for many, we've treated discipleship as, um, we treat discipleship more as instruction, teaching, like you're discipling me by teaching me scripture. I've seen that reflected in so many ways in the body of Christ where somebody believes they're being discipled because someone is sitting down and teaching scripture to them. No, discipleship is not teaching scripture, okay? Teaching scripture is teaching scripture. And yes, there's a place for that. And that can be a part of discipleship, right? It can be um, an element to the module or a module to discipleship. However, it's not discipleship. Um, what discipleship is, is essentially impartation. It's a becoming. That's what discipleship is. That is that when you have someone who's discipling you, they're not just teaching you scripture, but they're teaching you to become as they are. Okay. To become as they are. And I think this is the paradigm shift that we need to see in the body of Christ. We need to see people who aspire to become like the people who are discipling them, not simply to receive the information that the people have. So discipleship is about life. It's about all of life. It's about your marriage. It's about your family. It's about your career. It's about your work. It's about your resources. It's about your, your, your service. It's about all these things. And so we ought to want to become like the people who are discipling us. And so I believe that one of the great contributions that I can provide to you is is that as we go through certain challenges that we share in those challenges as well. Um, but anyway, that's just a side note um, that uh, we we just love that we have people that we're doing family together with. And and guys, God bless you guys. God bless you. God bless you all so much. And God bless all the patrons um, who support us uh, with that monthly $10 or more donation. If you're interested in becoming a patron, just go on Patreon. Um, you can click the link in the bio and you can support us because I've, I've been getting messages. How do I become a patron? How do I become a patron? Just click the link um, in the bio and and become a patron. But one of the things that I want to do is I actually want to take time aside and just pray for the patrons. Um, I know a lot of you have been sending me messages there and we're able to connect a little bit more. And I love that we have a, a more intimate community, a more intimate family there. But I do want to make sure my patrons know because I know a lot of you commit to our time in the morning that I'm praying for you um, and I'm setting time aside to pray for you as well. So I just want to want you to know that. Um, let's get right to it, y'all. This is the read and rant. And what we essentially do here is, is that we spend 20 to 30 minutes every day, every weekday committing to the reading of the word. Um, and then we spend another 20 to 30 minutes reflecting on the word. And so today what we're going to do is, is we're going to finish the book of Chronicles. We started from Genesis and today we're going to finish Chronicles. We're the second part of Chronicles. Second Chronicles will start in chapter 33 and we're going to read that till the end. And then we're going to spend some time, maybe a few moments, just reflecting on the scripture. So if you can go ahead and turn your Bibles there. And what we're going to do is, is we're going to read the scripture and we're going to read the rest of this book, but we're going to read it in the context of um, reflection and meditation. That means that we're going to change our posture. We're not reading this as an intellectual text, but we're going to read it as a spiritual text. To read it as, 
as a conduit of transmission of God's spirit to ours to speak to us today concerning what we're going through today that the Lord would reveal himself to us, his will, his heart, his desire, his plan, and that we would be transformed by it. And so we're going to pray these three prayers or these three things as we read. We're praying into three questions. God, what are you revealing concerning yourself? Second question is, God, what are you revealing concerning people? And the third question is going to be, God, what are you revealing concerning me? Those are the three questions that we're going to ask. God, what are you revealing concerning yourself? God, what are you revealing concerning people? And God, what are you revealing concerning me? So let's dig in. Father, I ask right now, Lord, that you would speak to us today. Lord, I thank you, Lord, for each and every one of these folks who are on right now, Lord, who you love so much, who you love dearly, but who you have called your children adopted them into you by faith. Father, I pray right now Lord, that you would bless us in this time, Lord. Reveal your heart to us. Reveal your will to us, Lord God. Um, Lord, give us conviction. Exhort us. Lord, give us correction where we need correction. Father, Lord, leave, reveal yourself to us. Walk with us today as we walk through your text. Lord, and we ask that in your name we pray. Amen and amen. Second Chronicles 33, verse 1. And it says this, Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. But he did evil in the sight of the Lord according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord has had cast out before the children of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places which Hezekiah his father had broken down. He raised up altars for the Baals and made wooden images and he worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served them. He also built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem shall my name be forever. And he built altars for all the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. Also, he caused his sons to pass through the fire in the valley of the, of the son of Hinnom. He practiced soothsaying, used witchcraft and sorcery, and consulted mediums and spiritists, he did much evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. He even set a carved image, the idol which he had made in the house of God, in which God had said to David and to Solomon his son, in this house and in, Jer in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. And I will not again remove the foot of Israel from the land which I have appointed to your fathers. Only if they are careful to do what I have commanded them according to the whole law and the statutes and the ordinances by the hand of Moses. So Manasseh seduced Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord had destroyed before the children of Israel. And the Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they would not listen. Therefore the Lord brought upon them the captains of the army of the king of Assyria who took Manasseh with hooks, bound him with bronze fetters, and carried him off to Babylon. Now when he was in affliction, he implored the Lord his God, and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers, and prayed to him, and received it, and he received his entreaties, heard his supplication, and brought him back to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. After this, he built a wall outside the city of David on the west side of Gihon, 
in the valley as far as the entrance of the fish gate and opened or fell. Sorry, and it enclosed or fell. And he raised it to a very great height. Then he put military captains in the fortified cities of Judah. He took away the foreign gods and the idol from the house of the Lord. And he built the altars that he had built in the mount of the house of the Lord and in Jerusalem. And he cast them out of the city. He also repaired the altar of the Lord, sacrificed peace offerings and thank offerings on it, and commanded Judah to serve the Lord God of Israel. Nevertheless, the people are still sanctified on the high places, but only to the Lord their God. Now the rest of the acts of Manasseh, his prayer to his God, and the words of the seers who spoke to him in the name of the Lord God of Israel, indeed they are written in the book of the kings of Israel, also his prayer, and how God received his entreaty and all his sin and trespass, and the sites which he built high places and set up wooden images and carved images before he was humbled. Indeed, they were written among the sayings of Hosea. So Manasseh rested with his fathers and they buried him in his own house. Then his son Ammon reigned in his place. And Ammon, sorry. Ammon was 22 years old when he became king. And he reigned two years in Jerusalem, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord of his father, Man as his father Manasseh had done. For Ammon sacrificed to all the carved images which his father Manasseh had made and served them. And he did not fumble himself before the Lord as his father Manasseh had fumbled himself. But Ammon trespassed more and more. Then his servants conspired against him and killed him in his own house. But the people of the land executed all those who had conspired against King Ammon. Then the people of the land made his son Josiah king in his place. Hmm. Josiah was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem, and he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, and walked in the ways of his father David. He did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. For in the eighth year of his reign, while he was still young, he began to seek the God of his father David. And in the twelfth year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, the wooden images, the carved images, the molded images. They broke down the altars of the Baals in his presence, and the incense altars were above them he cut that were above them he cut down. And the wooden images, the carved images, the molded images he broke in pieces and made dust of them and scattered it on the graves of those who had sacrificed to them. He also burned the bones of the priests on their altars and cleansed Judah and Jerusalem. And so he did in the cities of Manasseh, Ephraim, and Simeon, as far as Naphtali and all around with axes, which he had broken down the altars and the wooden images, had beaten the carved images into powder and cut down all the incense altars throughout the land of Israel. He returned to Jerusalem. In the eighteenth year of his reign, when he had purged the land and the temple, he sent Saphan, the son of Azaliah, Messiah, the governor of the city, Joah, the son of Joaz, the recorder, to repair the house of his God. When he came to Hilkiah, the high priest, they delivered the money that was brought into the house of God, which the Levites, who kept the doors, had gathered from the hand of Manasseh and Ephraim, from all the remnant of Israel, from all of Judah and Benjamin, which they had brought back to Jerusalem. Then they put it in the hand of the foreman who had oversight of the house of the Lord, and they gave it to the workmen 
who worked in the house of the Lord to repair and restore the house. They gave, they gave it to craftsmen and builders to buy hewn stone and timber for beams and to floor the houses with the kings, which the kings of Judah had destroyed. And the men did the work faithfully. Their overseers were Jahath and Abadiah, the Levites, of the sons of Merari and Zechariah and Meshulam, the sons of the Kohathites to supervise. Others of the Levites, all of whom were skillful in the instruments of music, were over the burden bearers and were overseers of all the work in any kind of service. And some of the Levites were scribes, officers, and gatekeepers. Now when they had brought out the money that was brought out into the house of the Lord, Hilkiah the priest found the book of the law of the Lord given by Moses. Then Hilkiah answered and said to Sephon the scribe, I found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Sephon. So Sephon carried the book to the king, bringing the king word, saying, All that was committed to your servants they are doing. And they have gathered the money that was found in the house of the Lord, and they have delivered it into the hand of the overseers and the workmen. Then Saphon the scribe told the king, saying, Hilkiah the priest had has given me a book. And Saphon read it before the king. Thus it happened. When the king heard the words of the law, that he tore his clothes. And the king commanded Hilkiah and Ahikam, the son of Saphon, and Abdon, the son of Micah, and Saphon the scribe, and Asiah, the servant of the king, saying, Go inquire of the Lord for me, and for those who left in Israel and Judah, and those who are left in Israel and Judah concerning the words of the book that is found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is poured out on us, because our fathers have not kept the word of the Lord to do according to what was written in this book. So Hilkiah and those the king had appointed to Huldah, the prophetess, the wife of Shalom, the son of Tokath, the son of Heshra, keeper of the wardrobe. She dwelt in Jerusalem in the second quarter. They spoke to her to that effect. Then she answered, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Tell the man who sent you to me. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will bring calamity on this place and on its inhabitants. All the curses that are written in the book, which they have read before the king of Judah, because they have forsaken me and burned incense to other gods that they may provoke me to anger with all the works of their hands. Therefore, my wrath will be poured out on this place and not be quenched. But as for the king of Judah, who sent you to acquire of the Lord, in this manner you shall speak to him. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, concerning the words which you have heard, because your heart was tender and you humbled yourself before God when you heard his words against this place and against his inhabitants, and you humbled yourself before me and tore your clothes and wept before me. I also have heard you, says the Lord. Surely I will gather you to your fathers and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace and your eyes shall not see the calamity which, which I will bring to this place and its inhabitants. And they brought word back to the king. Then the king sent and gathered all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. The king went up to the house of the Lord with all the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the priests and the Levites and all the people great and small. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant, which had been found in the house of the Lord. And the king stood in this place and made a covenant before the Lord to follow the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart, all his soul 
to perform the words of the covenant that were written in the book. He made all who were present in Jerusalem and Benjamin take a stand. So the inhabitants of Jerusalem did according to the covenant of God, the God of their fathers. Thus Josiah removed all the abominations from all the country that belonged to the children of Israel and made all who were present in Israel diligently serve the Lord their God. All his days they did not depart from following the Lord God of their fathers. Chapter 35. Now Josiah kept a Passover to the Lord in Jerusalem, and they slaughtered the Passover lambs on the 14th day of the first month. And he set the priests in their duties and encouraged them for the service of the house of the Lord. Then he said to the Levites who taught all Israel, who were holy to the Lord, put the holy ark in the house which Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, built. It shall no longer be a burden on your shoulders. Now serve the Lord your God and his people Israel. Prepare yourselves according to your father's houses, according to your divisions, following the written instruction of King David of Israel and the written instruction of Solomon his son. And stand in the holy place according to the divisions of the father's houses of your brethren, the lay people, and according to the division of the house of the father's house of the Levites. So slaughter the Passover offerings, consecrate yourselves, and prepare them for the brethren that they may do according to the word of the Lord by the hand of Moses. Then Josiah gave the lay people lambs and young goats for, from the flock. All the Passover offerings for all who were present to number to the number of 30,000, as well as 3,000 cattle. These were from the king's possessions. All his leaders gave willingly to the people, to the priests, and to the Levites. Hilkiah, Zechariah, Jael, the rulers of the house of God, gave to the priests for the Passover offerings 2,600 from the flock, 300 cattle, and Konaniah, the sons of Shemaiah, and Nathanael, and Heb Hashabiah, <laughs> and Jael, and Josabad, chief of the Levites, gave to the Levites for Passover offerings 5,000 from the flock and 5,000, sorry, and 500 cattle. So the service was prepared, and the priests stood in their place, and the Levites in their divisions, according to the king's command. And they slaughtered the Passover offerings, and the priests sprinkled the blood with their hands, while the Levites skinned the animals. Then they removed the burnt offerings, that they might give them to the divisions of the fathers' houses of the lay people to offer to the Lord as it is written in the book of Moses. And so they did with the cattle. Also, they roasted the Passover offerings with fire according to the ordinance. But the other holy offerings they boiled in pots and cauldrons and in pans and divided them quickly among the lay people. Then afterward, they prepared portions of themselves for themselves and for the priests, because the priests, the sons of Aaron, were busy in burnt offerings and fat until night. Therefore, the Levites prepared portions for themselves and for the priests. The, Aaron, the sons of Aaron, the singers, the sons of Asaph, were in their places according to the command of David, Asaph, Heman, and Jedithan, the king's seer. Also, the gatekeepers were at each gate. They did not have to leave their portion because their brethren, the Levites, prepared portions for them. So all the service of the Lord was prepared the same day to keep the Passover 
and to offer burnt offerings on the altar of the Lord according to the command of King Josiah. And the children of Israel were present, kept the, who were present kept the Passover at that time and the feast of unleavened bread for seven days. And there had been no Passover kept in Israel like since the days of Samuel the prophet. And none of the kings of Israel had kept such a Passover as Josiah kept. With the priests and the Levites, all Judah and Israel who were present and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. In the 18th year of the reign of Josiah, this Passover was kept. After all this, when Josiah had prepared the temple, Necho, king of Egypt, came up to fight against Karshemish by the Euphrates. And Josiah went out against him. But he sent messengers to him saying, What have I to do with you, king of Judah? I have not come against you this day, but against the house with which I have war. For God commanded me to make haste. Refrain from meddling with God who is with me, lest he destroy you. Nevertheless, Josiah would not turn his face from him, but disguised himself so that he might fight with him. And did not heed the words of Necho from the mouth of God. So he came to fight in the valley of Megiddo, and the archers shot King Josiah. And the king said to his servants, Take me away, for I am severely wounded. His servants therefore took him out of the chariot, put him in the second chariot that he had, and they brought him to Jerusalem, so he died, and was buried in one of the tombs of his fathers, and all of Judah and Jerusalem mourned for Josiah. Jeremiah also lamented for Josiah, and to this day, all the singing men and the singing women speak of Josiah in their lamentations. They made it a custom in Israel, and indeed, they were written in laments. Now the rest of the acts of Josiah and his goodness, according to what was written in the law of the Lord and his deeds from first to last, indeed, they are written in the book of the kings of Israel and Judah. Then the people of the land took Jehoaz, the son of Josiah, and made him king in his father's place in Jerusalem. Jehoaz was 23 years old when he became king, and he reigned three months. Now the king of Egypt deposed him at Jerusalem, and he imposed on the land a tribute of 100 talents of silver and a talent of gold. And the king of Egypt made Jehoaz brother of Eliakim, king over Judah and Jerusalem and changed his name to Jehoiakim and Necho took Jehoaz his brother and carried him off to Egypt Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he became king and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem and he did evil in the sight of the Lord his God Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon came up against him and bound him in bronze fetters and to carry him away to Babylon Nebuchadnezzar also carried off some of the articles from the house of the Lord <clears throat> and put them in his temple at Babylon. Now the rest of the acts of Jehoiakim, the abominations which he did and what was found against him, indeed they were written in the book of the kings of Israel and Judah. Jehoiakim, his son, reigned in his place. Jehoiakim was eight years old when he became king and he reigned in Jerusalem three months and ten days. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord. At the turn of the year, King Nebuchadnezzar summoned him into Babylon with costly articles from the house of the Lord 
and made Zedekiah Jehoiakim's brother king over Judah and Jerusalem. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord, and did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet, who spoke from the mouth of the Lord. And he also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar, who had made him swear an oath by God. But he stiffened his neck and hardened his heart, turning to the Lord God of Israel. Moreover, all the leaders of the priests and the people transgressed more and more according to all the abominations of the nations and defiled the house of the Lord, which he had consecrated in Jerusalem. And the Lord God of their fathers sent warnings to them by his messengers, rising up early and sending them because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked the messengers of God, despised his words, scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people till there was no remedy. Therefore, he brought against them the king of the Chaldeans, who killed the young men with the sword, with the house of the sanctuary, and no compassion on a young man or a virgin, on the aged or the weak. He gave them all into his hand, and all the articles from the house of God, great and small, the treasures of the house of God, and the treasures of the king and of his leaders, all these he took to Babylon. And they burned the house of God, broke down the wall of Jerusalem, burned all its palaces with fire and destroyed all its precious possessions. And those who escaped from the sword, he carried away to Babylon, where they became servants to him and his sons until the rule of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed her Sabbaths. As long as she lay desolate, she kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. Now, in the first year of King Cyrus of Persia, that the word of the Lord by mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing saying, thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, all the kingdoms of the earth, the Lord God of heaven has given me, and he has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who among you of all his people, sorry, who is among you of all his people? May the Lord God be with him and let him go up. May the Lord God be with him and let him go up. The word of God. I want to say, first of all, congrats. Um, we have read now through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 Chronicles, and now we are reading through 2 Chronicles. And we just finished, sorry, we just finished 2 Chronicles. So I want to say, first of all, congrats on reaching that milestone. There's some of you who have been journeying with us from the beginning. And for many, you found this time that we spent together a blessing because, as 
if we can be honest, many Christians call them lay people, since that was the terminology we saw in this text today, are intimidated by the word. They're intimidated by reading the word because, again, uh, there's a culture that has been established or created in the church that um, there's a culture in the church that sort of, you know, presents the pastors and the ministers and the preachers as the experts of scripture whom the children of God are dependent on to receive the word of God. And yet what I want to do with you is, is rather than simply feeding you scripture from the pulpit, I'd like to sit with you every day and just read through the scripture with you to walk you through it so that you understand the whole purpose of the text in and of itself. This is not a knock on those who read the verse of the day on you version. Because again, that's a daily discipline, which I think is fruitful. But if you really truly want to understand and have a wider understanding and a deeper understanding of even the verses that you read in your verse of the day in you version, you've got to read any text and any scripture within the backdrop of the entire scripture. What I find is that most Christians are intimidated by the scripture because it all sounds confusing. It's all kind of like, what is this? Like, I don't, I don't fully get what I'm reading here. I don't, I don't understand. Like, this is a lot. And so what I hope to do is, is I hope to at least have you journey through the whole text, expose you through all of it, journey and walk through all of it. And once you've been exposed to the totality of the text, you're going to start realizing that there's more to the scriptures than maybe what was taught to you, one. Two, you begin to understand that the scripture was meant to be a story to articulate God's heart to his children. And once you understand that and you begin to posture yourself that way, then you understand now how to posture yourself through some of the things that you read in scripture that sometimes have been very challenging and difficult for believers. Um, things like the Ten Commandments have been difficult for believers who argue about the Ten Commandments or um, or reading through the book of Leviticus. There are Christians who still argue over that. And what are the things that I ought to do in the book of Leviticus? And what are things that I ought not to do in the book of Leviticus? And so there are those of you who read that. And then there are those of you and you know who, who argue, well, the Bible says I ought to do this and I ought to do that. Understand that this text, this book is not a instruction book of morality. Okay, this is not an instruction book to teach you about what is moral and immoral in the sense of creating a moral code by which all of us ought to follow. Okay, that's not what the Bible is about. And yet that's how often many of us read it. Now, is there a code of morality in it? Yes, there is. And yet that's not the purpose of the text. The purpose of the text is to articulate a story, a story of a people. A story of a people and how God through these people is bringing restoration, renewal, justice and to, to an entire race of people. It's about how God has chosen one family to bring to reconciliation and restoration an entire race. This is, a, this is an articulation of the story of humanity. And yet what Chronicles is about is if you notice, uh, Chronicles begins with Adam. Chronicles begins with the story of humanity. Chronicles is a recap of everything we've read. The thing I want you to notice is that if Chronicles is chronologically out of place, because Chronicles, in the story, if you want to remain chronological, Chronicles should be after Nehemiah. 
Okay, you got Ezra, you've got Nehemiah, and then you kind of throw Chronicles right there after it, okay? Um, that's probably a better place for you to put Chronicles. But I also want you to notice that as Chronicles is recapping and summarizing everything that we've read in First and Second Kings, First um, um, and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, everything that we've read through those books, and if you include Ezra and Nehemiah, and then you've got Chronicles, it's just a recap, right? It's a recap of everything that's transpired up until this point, and it's providing you this recap from a different perspective and a different vantage point. Not only that, notice that the that the the these books that we've just read, they're cueing other books that we have not read yet and may not ever read, right? Um, there are prophetic books that this is actually referring to, that these books are referring to, that we actually, that aren't actually in the Bible, okay? Um, they're not actually in this volume of books, and yet these books bring reference to them, okay? Um, notice also that there are references to books and to people, prophets specifically, who we're going to read later on, like, for example, Jeremiah, like, for example, Isaiah, like for, so, so if you take Jeremiah or Isaiah, the book of Lamentations, these books, notice now, and I just want you to see how it all fits, that these prophets that we're going to read later on, Habakkuk, Micah, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, all the prophets that we're going to read later on, most of these prophets were writing these revelations and these prophetic and some of it apocalyptic letters during the time that we're reading here in the text. The story is mostly here from Judges to Second Chronicles, or if you look at it from the text to Nehemiah. And so we read, and so notice now how all of it, I hope what you're seeing is how all of it comes together, okay? How all of it kind of pieces together. Why is that important? It's important because as I had in informed you uh, the last time, maybe it was our last reading rant or the reading rant before, but I think I believe there's a lot of overlapping, exactly. Um, gosh, I believe it was the last last rant um, that, that I shared with you is we often read the Bible as a book when we ought to be reading the Bible as a collection of books. It's a, it's a curated collection of books. And whenever a book or a collection is curated, the curator has curated it in this way with a purpose and a message. The curator has curated Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles, has curated it in this way with a purpose in mind. I want to make sure you understand that. Okay, that that you shouldn't read the Bible as one book where Chronicles is a chapter in the book. No, Chronicles is a book in and of itself. Okay, 
the book of Kings is a book in and of itself. We just broke it into two. Um, the, the book of Samuel is a book. The book of Genesis is a separate book. The book of Leviticus is a separate book. Okay? And each one is revealing a truth and has an intention. When you read Lord of the Rings, there's a story in that collection. If you read Harry Potter, there's a story and a message that's being articulated in it. If you read, I don't know, Killing Lincoln, right? If you read that book, there's a story. There's something that is being articulated. There's an intention by the author. And so you read it, yes, you read it on, you would call it a microscope of sorts, but you read it with a macroscope, okay? Where, where does that book fit within the rest of the books? Because now it's brought into collection. Why am I bringing all this up? I'm bringing all this up because I hope that you've been seeing what's happening throughout this journey. And I don't have a lot of time, and this is not a Bible study. I'm sorry I said a lot already. That might sound more Bible study-ish than meditation-ish. But I felt it was important for me to say this because these books were carefully curated to articulate a story that's pointing to something. This was a kingdom lost. And it's pointing now to how God is working the restoration of his kingdom through a family of people. We see a kingdom lost, which was lost at Eden. I call it a kingdom. Eden was a kingdom because it was at Eden that God gave mankind governance and rule. He said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, rule it. The scriptures tell us that when he said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And then it says, and let them have dominion. Let them rule. Meaning, God who created all things gave mankind rule over all things that he created. So the destiny of the earth rest in the hands of mankind. The destiny, let me say this one more time. The earth's destiny rests on the hands of humanity. And I'll go as far as saying, and this almost sounds heretical and people will get upset when I say it, but the destiny of mankind rests in the hands of man because God has delegated his authority and his rule on earth to mankind. I've ranted on this before and I'll do a little mini rant again. What is good and bad on this planet, if it transpires from this moment on, the responsibility rests in the hands of humanity. If God is fixing anything, if God is doing anything, He's doing it through mankind. He's doing it through humanity. God actually needs human participation. It is through humanity that God does what he does. We are ambassadors of God on earth. And that's 
and that maybe will help you solve the puzzle of why God had to become a man in order to bring righteousness and justice to the earth because God cannot do anything on this earth except through humanity. And so he establishes his kingdom at Eden, but very quickly that kingdom was lost because Adam committed treason and that he chose his agenda over God's. And now because his justice over God's justice. And here's the thing, ready for this? Any justice other than God's justice is injustice. Let me say that one more time. Any justice other than God's justice is injustice. It's funny how we have all our own definitions of justice. This is the issue of social justice movements. Any social justice movement that isn't driven by the righteousness of God. That's why the word righteousness in scripture is the word justice in scripture. They're both the same word. Righteousness and justice are both the same word. The problem is when we talk about justice, we're actually not talking about righteousness. We're talking about our own preservation, our own sense of purpose, our own sense of actualization, our own ideologies. And so we establish all these political systems off of ideals that are human driven and not God driven. And because they are human driven and not God driven, get ready for this, they are demonic. Any wisdom that veers away from the glory of God is demonic. So then, here's where it gets uncomfortable. And I'll let you work it out. I'll let you work it out. I'll let you work it out. But can you think of any political philosophy that exists today that represents the righteousness of God? Can you think of any political philosophy today? Any political ideal, any social construct or social system today that has been developed and thought through that represents the heart and the authority and the sovereignty of God. And if any of them fall short, then they are forms of injustice. Because if they are not righteous in him, then they are unjust. This is why capitalism is unjust. This is why socialism is unjust. This is why communism is unjust. This is why you can go through all the isms. They are all unjust because they represent ideals that do not fully embody the heart and the character of God. You know, it's that capitalistic thinking that has brought a theology today where we just invent scriptures. You know, have you seen, have you seen verses that, that just get invented because we impose our politics on our scripture and our politics on our theology? Like God helps those that help themselves. That is not Bible. 
That is not scripture. There's no scripture behind that. Family, if God helps those who help themselves, then we would all go to hell. If God helps those who help themselves, then we are all doomed. Because when Jesus came to save us, he came to save a people who never could save themselves. By the grace of God, he came and entered into the reality of our lives. When we found ourselves in the bottom of Sheol, didn't it say that he has made us alive, those who were once dead, and has quickened us alive in him? We were dead and nobody can self-resuscitate. We were helpless in our sin, helpless in our situation, helpless in crisis, and yet God came and he entered in. We could not help ourselves. So therefore, if the gospel says that I came to be your help when you could not help yourself, then where do you get this theology that God helps those who help themselves? But because we have now this new theology of individualism, capitalistic thinking, we now have made that doctrine and yet that is unjust as well. Notice that even in capitalism, there are people who are hurting. There are people who are dying. There are people who are starving. But in communism, there are people who are starving because communism is a glory of the man, of the self. It's an establishing of an ideology, an ideal of the collective, that we are powerful in and of ourselves. Here's the problem with that. We saw that. We saw that at the Tower of Babel. We saw the Tower of Babel when we wanted to be gods ourselves. And we know how that turned out. Because God won't be glorified uh, mankind won't be glorified outside the glory of Christ and outside the glory of God. And yet, because we sought to glorify ourselves, the consequence of that is that God had to divide us for his glory. Capitalism is injustice. Socialism is injustice. Libertarianism is injustice. They're all unjust. And so everything was lost there at Eden because every one of our political ideologies and political ideals and political philosophies are centered in our own definition of self to preserve our power, our position, but not rooted in our divine mandate to be governors and co-heirs of the rule of this earth with God. God helps those who help themselves. That ain't Bible. That's not scripture. Now, I'm sorry if I did that little rant because that wasn't my point. That was a rant. I'm sorry. My point is this, is we begin to see how God begins to rework his kingdom and establish his kingdom through a people. We walk through Genesis, Exodus, we walk through Leviticus, and man, the beauty of the book of Leviticus. If you read Leviticus right, by the way, I encourage you go back and go to the read and rant and read through Leviticus with me. Because if you read Leviticus right, Leviticus is not about rules we can follow. It's about the fact that we'll never follow those rules and we cannot follow those rules. And when we don't follow those rules, God has instituted a system by which we can still enter back into his presence every time we break the rules. 
The book of Leviticus is actually about the book of atonement. How through a blood sacrifice, we've been given access back into the presence of God. So we see here that God, while he is righteous, he is gracious because he wants us to be with him. God isn't in the business of being right. He wants, he's in the business of maintaining his righteousness. And God found a loophole in the system that through the sacrifice of blood, we've been given access back into his presence. What a privilege we have. That it don't matter how much we mess up, how much we <laughs> how much we wreck this thing up, we've been given access back to the presence of God. The children of Israel never had a problem with that. We're the ones who do because we want to find a way to make it by our own doing, in our own capacity, in our own ability, and yet there's nothing we can do to get there. God, when he chose us, he chose us in them when we were still screwed up, wrecked up, messed up, ain't nothing we could do about it, and yet God brought us back into his presence. That's not my point. My point is, is that we read Leviticus, we read it wrong. We read Numbers, we see them walking in the grace. Deuteronomy, they receive, the, the next generation receives the law again. And they receive the law and God says, follow this law because this is how I rule. I've set you aside as a children because this is how I rule again. The restoration of the kingdom of God. God is in the business of restoring his kingdom. But then we see that they veer away from it. Then we get to this part of the text and we close out with the book of Chronicles. And we see here in the book of Chronicles, Kings who continually fall short over and over and over and over again, who continue to screw it up over and over and over again. And yet God allows them another chance. God is still working his thing through them. God is still executing his justice through these sinful, broken people. This is not about how you follow their example. This is how God, through their example, is showing you how he works things through even broken and sinful people. And then we get to this text and we get to Manasseh. If you just give me a couple of minutes. He gets to Manasseh. Manasseh, man, he does good. He brings the nation back to repentance back to the law of God. He brings the nation back and he, he establishes, um, he institutes the land. He brings back worship. He, and once he brings back, at a young age, by the way, he tears down the wooden images. He tears down all the compromises of the children of Israel. He brings the children of Israel back to the presence of God. But then Manasseh, it says in verse nine, so Manasseh seduced Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to do more evil than all the nations of Israel. Why? Because Manasseh then comes back, compromises, provokes God, sorry, compromises. I was talking about, um, 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 what's his name before Manasseh? I was talking about um, Hezekiah, but then we get to Manasseh, my apologies guys, but then we get to Manasseh. Manasseh compromises from the gate. In verse 2, from the start, the scriptures tell us he did evil in the sight of the Lord. Abominations. He served the Baals, carved up wooden images, worshiped them. He did all the stuff that we would have looked and said, man, this guy, he ain't it. 
We see all the stuff Manasseh does. We see how he has sinned against God and he sinned against the children of Israel. He has not ruled the way that God rules. He's ruling under the same spirituality and, 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 and the demon worship and the sacrifices and, and the worship of idols, of the Baals. The same thing that everybody else did, he did as well. And then in verse 9, so Manasseh seduced Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord had destroyed before the children of Israel. They're worse than everybody else. And what happens? The Lord has Manasseh carried off into Babylon. Punishes him. But what I love about the text is as he's carried off in bronze fetters. And the scriptures tell us that he was in affliction. He implored the Lord his God, verse 12, and humbled himself greatly before God and before the God of his fathers and prayed to him. And he received his entreaty, heard his supplication, and brought him back to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. Manasseh has sinned against God by any record in comparison, by his record in comparison to any other record. Manasseh doesn't deserve any attention from God. And yet Manasseh with bronze hooks and fetters finding himself in captivity when he was in affliction the Lord his God um, he humbled himself before the Lord his God and he prayed and the Lord responded by restoring him he 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 humbled himself I don't know if anybody knows what it's like to be in Babylon. When you've lived a life for so long that doesn't look like anything within any type of proximity to the will of God. And you've lived a life just, just messed up. Like you look back and you say, listen, in comparison to even people who aren't saved and aren't Christians, I've lived a life that doesn't look like the life that a Christian ought to live. There are many of us who find ourselves where Manasseh is in this text, who after all of our debauchery and our sin, that we find ourselves now in chains, stuck, bronze fetters. I love this text when it says now he, was, he was bound by bronze fetters because now, there was a sense of royalty and respect to him, but no matter what it looked like, it was still a fetter. It might look good. It might have, it might be a precious metal and a precious stone, but yet in the end, it's chaining me. And there are many of us who are stuck in Babylon, finding ourselves in captivity, stuck because of everything we've done up to this point in our lives. And here we are now coming before God. And the same privilege that Manasseh has, we have the same privilege. We can come before him. 
in his affliction, he implored the Lord his God, and he humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. This brings us back to Leviticus again, because Manasseh is being reminded that God always leaves a door open. God always leaves a door back in. This is for somebody right now who's like, for everything that I've done, for all the sin that I've committed, listen, Manasseh don't look good, y'all. And yet Manasseh finds himself in a broken place, and yet that broken place is an invitation back into the presence of God. He prays, and the, the text tells us that the Lord heard his prayer, that the Lord received his entreaty, and the Lord heard his supplication and the Lord brought him back to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Brought him back to restoration. Maybe some stuff that you've done has messed up your marriage. Some stuff that you've done has messed up your life. There's some things that you've done that have messed up things that are going on in your family. And you're wondering how can God bring restoration to it? And yet God is saying he can restore Things He can bring things new. He's the God that makes things new. Manasseh gets to go back to Jerusalem. He gets to have another chance. And what does he do with his other chance? After this, he built a wall outside the city of David on the west side of Gihon in the valley, as far as the entrance of the fish gate and enclosed an and he raised it at a very great height. Then he put military camp. He fortified the cities of Judah. Then look what he says in verse 15. He took away the foreign gods and the idols from the house of the Lord and all the altars which he had built in the mount of the house of the Lord and in Jerusalem, and he cast them out of the city. He also repaired the temple. He repaired the altar of the Lord. He repaired the sacrifice peace offerings. He Sorry, he repaired and then he sacrificed peace offerings. He gave thanks offerings and he commanded Judah to serve the Lord God of Israel. You know what I realized, family? I'm done. I'm done. I can't think of a better worshiper than one who finds themselves to be redeemed and restored by the grace of God. Like when you finally, when you know where you've been and you know what you've done, and you know that you don't deserve his grace and you know that you do not deserve his love and you receive it, ain't nothing like that. Ain't nothing like a person who finally gets to live in the grace because now they live a life of boldness and distinction. They say, listen, God came back. He restored me, brought me back to light, brought me back to life. When I go back to Jerusalem, I'm getting rid of every idol. I'm getting rid of all the things that took me away from God, that distracted me from him. I, I'm, I'm getting rid of all of that because now I've got my heavenly father and, I've, and he gave me another chance. I'm nothing like a person who gets to walk with the second chance. Ain't nothing like it when you get to receive him one more time. And there's somebody right now who's saying, man, I know exactly what that looks like when I know that there was a place that God took me from the pit of hell, from the pit of demise, and God pulled me out. And now because I am where I am, what governs my life is the fact that God gave me a second chance. I don't live for the grace, but man, now that I've received the grace, oh, I'm not going to squander this one. And I know there's somebody who knows exactly what I'm talking about to say, I know where God has taken me. And man, what governs me now is I don't want to squander the grace of God. 
I don't want to squander what he's given me. I don't want to squander the second chance that he's, that he's given me, this, this love. I don't live for his acceptance, but man, this is what it looks like to live out of his acceptance. God took Manasseh a long way. Kings in Manasseh's context and in Manasseh's situation, they're usually beheaded. They spend the rest of their lives in prison or they spend the rest of their lives in prison. And yet Manasseh gets to go back to Jerusalem and Manasseh gets another chance. Oh no, God, if you give me another chance, I don't know if anybody was praying that God, if you would give me another shot. And there's some people God has given you another chance out of that flows a desire to please him, a desire to clean house, a desire to say, Lord, my life is yours now. Do as you please with it. There's nothing like having a second chance. I don't, I don't, I don't earn the grace of God, but man, now that I have the grace of God, I want to live a life worthy of the grace of God. Like I want to live a life that looks like what God actually gave me. It's a whole different way to live because I know God, you've accepted me, but man, God, from here on out, take my life, take it all, take everything. It's all yours. I want to live to please you. Whatever idols I got in my home, whatever idols I have in my situation, whatever idols I have at work, whatever idols I have in my marriage, whatever idols I have, it's all of it, just, just take it. Take it. I want to be like Manasseh. I want to be like Manasseh. And there's some of you right now who may be on the other side and saying, man, I find myself with bronze fetters. I am shackled and chained to a situation that I can't break from. And what God is saying to you is, is he can give you another chance. All you got to do is humble yourself. He says in the word, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. God is working a story through Manasseh and he's working a story through each and every one of us. Father, I thank you, Lord, that you have given us, Lord, the hope of grace. Lord, that even though we live lives falling profoundly short of your glory, Lord, you accept us. You give us second chances. How many chances have you given us, Lord? So, Father, teach us, Lord, to live a life worthy. Teach us, Lord, to clean house. Teach us, Lord, to humble ourselves before you. Lord, to let go. To truly let go. Lord, I thank you for each and every person who's here. Bless us throughout this weekend, Lord. As we go into this weekend, Father, I just pray that your presence would be with us, that you would continue to reveal to, you, to us your wisdom and your grace. And I ask that in your name we pray. Amen. Family, I got to go. I love you all. For those of you who are patrons, God bless you. I appreciate you. I appreciate all that you've done. Um, if you're interested in becoming a patron and being a part of the family and committing to supporting us, click the link in the bio, click the link in the profile. I would appreciate it very much for those of you who are. Bless you.